Welcome, welcome. Episode 59 of the Phoenix Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. This is Chris Habis, as always. I'm just going to throw it out there, the BS of the Suns podcast. I'm still trying to sell it and float it out there to the powers that be, and nobody has accepted that as the official title. But coming at you with episode 59, and I should say take two. Um, Technology is not my best friend, as a lot of people already know. And uh, we recorded a pretty solid podcast. Dave will attest to this here in a minute. Recorded a pretty solid one, I think, on Tuesday night, referencing Summer League and a lot of cool stuff that we're going to talk about here again today. Um, But technology kind of got in the way with that. But Dave, live from Summer League, long day watching basketball. I'm sure he's uh, he had a a real long, terrible day out there in Las Vegas watching basketball. How are you doing out there, Dave? Oh, yeah, it's awful. It's awful sitting there watching uh, seven or eight games of basketball in one afternoon. Uh, a bunch of really talented kids running running around uh, shooting the ball and, and uh, trying to prove themselves in summer league. Yep, it's a, it's a pretty tough life, but someone's got to live it. Yeah, I mean, it's a chore. It's a chore. And you got to find out who Isaiah Kanan is out there with the Houston Rockets. I'm sure that it was, it was nice for you to get introduced to him with that pretty miraculous game. That was You were actually there watching that game specifically, right? I was, actually. And uh, he closed that thing out, man, after... Uh, uh, I think it was the Cavaliers. Yeah, the Cavaliers came back and, and got it within one. Kanan made a three right in Wiggins' face, I think, and they drove right on him right after that, and uh, the game was over. So, you know, while Wiggins and, and the Cavs are trying to make a big comeback, Kanan just shut the door. Yeah, I was going to say Kanan of uh, Murray State NCAA tournament fame for folks out there that aren't super familiar with him, but... Yeah, some guys just shine in Summer League, and, and you know, Isaiah has, has been great. Wiggins has been really good in Summer League. Uh, we'll get more into Summer League here in a moment. And what what's more relevant is free agency with the Suns right now. And, and Dave, you know about it. You've been writing about the cap and the players that have been coming in. Since we recorded our first initial take of this podcast, the Suns have signed a new player, gotten into drama with a player that's a restricted free agent that's theirs, and Channing Frye has made some comments about kind of his exit with Phoenix. He didn't, you know, he didn't, come out and backhand the Suns on his way out. But, you know, he made some honest takes like Channing Fry does. And I thought some of those quotes were really interesting. You were sharing those with me earlier, Dave. Let's let's talk a little bit about those Channing Fry quotes. He talked to Paul Coro of the Arizona Republic. Well, it is interesting because we can provide a little bit more context now than we could on Tuesday night. So as on Tuesday, Coro posted an article with some quotes from Fry that uh, you, you could take out of context as, as him, him acting a little petulant. Uh, he made a couple of comments like, I feel like the Suns were saving money for other things. They were not close enough to me, I guess financially, to take it seriously, which makes sense. It's a business. You have to be somewhere where you want it. I felt like the guys who have been there for years became a side note. So that's a pretty strong statement that, that Fry said there. And then uh, later on in the, in the article, he repeated it again, pretty much, saying Phoenix was preoccupied with other things. I wish them luck, but I made the right decision. I feel like we had something really awesome going. I didn't want to leave it because I was really close with those guys. So if he didn't want to leave it, why did he leave? Well, there's two reasons for that. And he went on the radio, uh, I think it was a Doug and Wolf show, but it could have been Gambo and Burns uh, the next day. Yeah, it was Burns and Gambo the next day. And they asked him point blank about some of his comments, and he and Fry basically said two things that stood out to me in that interview. One, he said that, look, I'm 31 years old. There's no way I'm going to take a discount. And this notion of players taking discounts is silly. Players should not take a discount, especially uh, when you have an opportunity to make a really good paycheck. So 
uh, Fry was just saying that's that's just silly to think that somebody would take a discount. So clearly, the Suns were not offering eight million dollars a year that he got from Orlando, guaranteed for four full years. Um, the first couple of years of that would have been fine. Four years of that, I think the Suns have regretted after after a time. Um, although you can make the case that if the cap does go up to eighty million or so uh, in a couple of years, then you know Friday eight million won't matter. But the Suns weren't there, so Fry wanted more money. He went to Orlando. The other thing he said uh, in context of it, saying it seems like the guys who've been here for years don't matter as much, uh, he meant that he just really wanted the team to stay together. He didn't think the team needed to go after a star and that they should just re-sign their players and come back next year. Um, I tend to agree with McDonough and Babby, who said, that look, the chemistry is never the same year to year. It's like going away on summer vacation and coming back to school the next year. You're not the same person. You're, uh, you've got different motivations. So, like, next year you're going to have the Morris twins and Drog. It's all playing for a contract, as well as Gerald Green. So they're not, I don't think next year would have been as perfect if the Suns had brought back the same team. But Fry really wanted them to have brought back the same team. And when the Suns told Fry they weren't going to, uh, he kind of lost a little bit of the interest. And then as soon as Orlando made a big offer, he jumped. Yeah, and I mean, in a vacuum... As a fan, or as just a you know just a casual person watching basketball, it would made it would have been great to bring that team back. That team won forty eight games. They had some health issues, uh, you know, Channing Fry included, with uh, him coming back from his heart condition and then playing you know a pretty up and down season. It was it was great at some points and it was you know pretty low at others. But you know it would have been nice to see them bring back the team with draft pick tweaks and maybe a free agent addition. And, you know, all of a sudden you could replicate 48 wins and, and maybe get a little better because, you know, you're always going to get a little better, right, when you got a bunch of young guys. So it, it makes sense on that context. But, look, I'm not going to be like Jalen Rose and say keep getting them checks Channing Fry because I, I think that that's more of a, you know, for the older folks that can't contribute. But think of it this way with Channing Fry. This is kind of my overall take on it. I thought about this the other day is Channing Fry has made 33 or sorry, $35.3 million in his career. He's going to make $32 million in the next four years. So, you know, he's secured up his family. He's playing on a young team. He's going to get to be a leader, a veteran, kind of guide and help those young guys out. I don't think that's a bad team. I don't know if they're going to make the jump from top five pick in the NBA draft to playing in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. But it could be a good team. It's really interesting the way that they're kind of making up that team and putting it together. And we'll see where they go from there. But, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for Channing. I know you are. I know most people out here are. And it had been great to have him. But they're, the Suns are losing a leader in the locker room. They're losing a guy that has a lot of, uh, a lot of following out here in Phoenix because he's from here. But, you know, on the flip side, they bring in Anthony Tolliver. They bring in Isaiah Thomas. We, we talked about the rookies before. So they're, they're doing a good job of kind of piecing together and starting to put together a team in the absence of Fry. Fry's not going to make them go from 48 wins to 35 wins overnight. But, you know, he's definitely a big loss. I think that people are saying that they're not going to miss him. They're, they're kind of undervaluing how big of a role he played on this team last year. Oh, Fry definitely played a big role on the team. And I think um, I like the way uh, I think it was Zach Lowe of Grantland put it, that he has a gravitational pull of the defense toward or at least the big the opposing big man toward the three point line, which means they're out of the paint, which makes a lot more space for the Suns guards to drive, which is their game. I mean if you've got someone like a Tyler Ennis, a Steve Nash, well no Steve forget I said that, but a Tyler Ennis or a Kendall Marshall or a traditional point guard who doesn't need to drive to the hoop to create offense, you don't need a fry quite as much. But if you're a Goran Dragic 
Eric Bledsoe, even Isaiah Thomas, although Thomas is a better career shooter than either um, Bledsoe or Dragic over his course of his career. Uh, they need that space in the lane, and uh, losing Fry is going to make the Suns have to replace that space with something else. Now, um, um, another article also says from Coro, from uh, yeah, from Coro says that Marquise Morris is extending his three-point range, actually working on it. I hope he's working on a faster release because that's his biggest drawback on. Besides the percentage, he's got such a slow release, the defense doesn't have to hug him. They can just be within 10 feet of him and close out as he's winding up. So, uh, yeah, if you're going to have your stretch four, stretch four, stretch five out there, you need a Tolliver on the team who can come out and actually uh, threaten the guy, the uh, the opposing big, with uh, making a three-pointer. Uh, you need that kind of shooting. So Anthony Tolliver was a good addition uh, the other day. Yeah, and, and when you just, quick comparison, because obviously people are going to look at it and go, power forward that shoots threes. I mean, he's two or three inches smaller than Channing, and, but he does other things as well. You know, better rebounder and does a little bit better athlete overall at this stage in their careers. But Anthony Tolliver last year on four attempts a night shot the ball 41% from three, whereas Channing on five, almost five and a half attempts a night shot at 37%. So Channing Fry, we've, we've always kind of poked a little bit of fun at him that he can go 0 for 5 one night and then go 5 for 5 the next night. And he's one of those guys that gets real hot real quick, but they can also miss a lot of shots uh, in a row as well. But you know, I think that replicating the three-point shooting, as you mentioned, if, if Markeith's hitting threes, if Tolliver can play big, and if Marcus Morris can kind of lampoon them off the bench a little bit playing some four, I'm not as scared about the four position and the thinness of the front court as we talked about a little bit on Tuesday, which you guys will never hear. Um, but <laughs> I think the front court's getting a little bit. I mean, a six eight power forward that shoots threes and Anthony Tolliver. He's a good athlete. He rebounds the ball well. But at the end of the day, he's a six foot eight power forward that shoots threes. So you know they're still a little thin up front and. The other addition was Isaiah Thomas, and we have a little bit of mixed opinions on that. I, I, I'll let you go first because you're more positive, but with the Isaiah Thomas signing, what were your initial thoughts on that and um, you know, the mix that he's going to bring to the team? Well, initially, I was just like everybody else going out. What? We don't uh, need another point guard, um, but actually it only took me uh, a few minutes, a lot less time than it took a lot of people, to figure out that this was a perfect signing. If you're going to have two starting point guards, that means your two of your starters are your point guards, then yes, you need a third one. Uh, you need a third one who can rotate in. Those guys cannot play all 48 minutes, as we saw last year. Uh, Bledsoe can't play 40 minutes. Dragic cannot play 40 minutes and be effective. And certainly over the course of the season, they're going to have their, their eighth pain. Uh, so having an Isaiah Thomas is a huge great over Anish Smith, over uh, Tyler Ennis even this year. Um, definitely it's good to have another skilled guy who can come in there and cover. So the Suns don't have to sign a Leandro Barbosa in January uh, off the street who um, unfortunately hurt himself you know, right after he signed. So I think the idea of Thomas signing was perfect. It also serves other purposes. It serves the purpose of, hey, you've got a fairly uh, high-producing player who's making only $7 million a year, and Dragic is currently making $7.5 million a year, so maybe you can argue down Bledsoe's price. We'll talk about Bledsoe in a minute, though. And then next year, Dragic won't feel so much pressure necessarily to top Bledsoe if he's got a teammate who's, who's almost as productive as him who's making only 7 a year. So I think it can help contract negotiations down the line. And another way it really helps is if one of those guys does leave, 
you've got a starting caliber guy, not quite as good, obviously, as Jarvis or Bledsoe, but he, he's a starting caliber guy who will be a great locker room presence. From everything we can tell, we saw all the Sacramento fans who got on our blog and uh, said that he would be a great addition for our team um, uh, personality-wise, and uh, the Suns really need a bright spot in there in the locker room. Yeah, and here's one argument that I don't want to hear from people. And um, if you're going to make that argument, we're going to argue here on the podcast a little bit. But one argument I don't want to hear from people is that Isaiah Thomas is going to come in and be 20-6, and six, which he's obviously not. That That's kind of like a minor, minute part of it. But the other part is is that he's going to come in, and of course you need Isaiah Thomas because of course Goran and Eric are going to go down with injuries. I don't like that rationale because what Isaiah Thomas does is he alleviates some of the burden off of Goran and Eric, maybe takes a minute or two a night off of them, maybe takes off a few of those crashes to the basket, takes off a little bit of those bumps and bruises that they would take. So potentially what the Isaiah Thomas signing does, and if either you know Tyler Ennis or Archie Goodwin earn rotation minutes, you know them as well, what that depth does, that quality of depth in a positive way, it actually could keep those two healthier in a way that the San Antonio Spurs did this year, where instead of resting the big three down the stretch, Greg Popovich and company and R.C. Buford, they said, you know what, let's do this a little different. Let's not rest these guys down the stretch. Let's get quality depth and let's play our guys less minutes throughout the season, and then they'll be healthy come playoff team. Now, the Suns are not championship ready, going to go after the finals like the Spurs were last year, but... I think building this team, at least in the backcourt right now, and maybe a little bit even on the wing, in that mold of we're going to have enough quality of depth where we can shave a minute or two off of these guys uh, on the top there, which takes off a lot of minutes throughout the season, saves their bodies, saves them from potential injuries, and puts them in a better position. So I I don't like that argument that you have to have a guy like Isaiah Thomas because one of these guys is going to get injured. I think he actually is an insurance policy that probably is going to limit their injuries even more. Oh, I think that's a fine argument to make. Um, you know, Isaiah Thomas did off the bench when he wasn't starting last year for Sacramento for some reason. Uh, they they started uh, uh, Grievous Vasquez in the beginning of the year. He was still putting up 17-5 and five off the bench. So he will be productive as a bench player, and I think he's best uh, for the Suns coming off the bench. Um, definitely. So I agree with you, Chris. Hopefully he'll help make those guys uh, less brittle um, over the course of the season and give them chances to take a breather so they're not aggravating issues and having them linger for for any longer. But I don't think you can say that it's going to totally take away the injury problem. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, that's, that's something nobody that. can predict, yeah. Right. So it's good to have that as an insurance policy as well. Yeah, I think that the training staff plus Isaiah Thomas, you know, quality of depth, as I was saying there, it's more of a quality of depth versus an Isaiah Thomas thing. And when I and I'm not going to go too deep into it or, or talk a lot about it because I wrote a, enough words about it earlier. But the Tyler Ennis situation, there's a lot of positives that come with having Ishmith or uh, sorry, not Ishmith. He's been on my mind because Houston signed him and I'm ecstatic for him. So good job, Ishmith. Go get that money. Um, go land on the Rockets and make the roster there. But the um. The thing with Tyler Ennis, the positive that he gets out of this, or that the Suns get out of it, I should say, is that they can now say that their 10th, 11th, 12th man could be somebody that would be in a rotation for a lot of other teams, potentially, and is as talented as a Tyler Ennis should be with where he was drafted. So that's kind of one of the positives that comes out of having you know your two starters and then signing Isaiah Thomas and drafting Tyler Ennis, where you can go, hey, we got four guys that were not... We're not scared to put in the rotation. We're not scared to play minutes and can go out there and do a lot of good things for us. So the positive for the Suns is they have that quality of depth now. And you see it a little bit on the wing, too, when you got 
P.J. Tucker, you have Gerald Green, you have T.J. Warren, and they're starting to piece together. You know, Marcus Morris will play some three. Uh, Archie will probably play some small ball three more, too. But they're, they're really piecing together between one, two, and three, a quality of depth to where, you know, maybe they can alleviate some of those injuries. The, the depth will do positive things for them. And, you know, as we alluded to a little bit before, the front court's still a little thin. Um, but they've done a real good job at one, two, and three of creating really nice depth and having a nice array of talent. Absolutely. Another advantage of bringing in uh, Isaiah Thomas and, uh, you know, doubling down basically on the Sun's style of play, which is attacking point guards, spacing for the shooters, and uh, getting a lot of points at the rim, but by the smaller guys, not necessarily the bigger guys. Um, by adding Isaiah Thomas, they've doubled down on that, which makes them, uh, makes them more of a sure bet to be an exciting team to watch next year, which could potentially get the Suns more national uh, you know, national coverage gains on the, on the slate next year, which gets them more exposure, which possibly makes them more relevant to the big name stars uh, in the coming years. Big name stars don't go, don't want to go to teams that are never on television, and uh, that, I'm sure that played some of a part uh, in uh, the Suns having trouble getting the biggest name stars to even look in their direction this year. You want to be a national TV team, and that's where the stars want to go. Yeah, and and so to circle the wagon back to Grievous Vasquez starting over Isaiah Thomas, you want to know why Grievous Vasquez started over Isaiah Thomas last year for a portion of the season? Sure. Because Sacramento Kings, that's why. Um, I mean, that's no, well, just... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's really only one well, answer to that. Had, he had actually had a pretty good year at uh, 13 points and 9 assists with New Orleans the year before, um, but it looks to me like that, that turned out to be a little bit hollow in the numbers because New Orleans was real happy to swap him out for, yeah, they got an all-star caliber uh, player in Drew Holiday, but Drew Holiday, uh, they also gave up Maryland's Knoll, and uh, I think they gave up yet another top pick. So and so in that whole thing, they wanted to replace Grievous Vasquez, who went over to Sacramento, uh, who actually got rid of Tyreek Evans in the process. So, you know, good, good on Sacramento there. Yeah, Grievous Vasquez is not a better player than Isaiah Thomas, so I don't know what happened there. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, that trade was, you know, they got Drew Holiday and they gave up, uh, you know, made the trade like they did, and they gave up also Dario Saric, who ended up being that pick um, in this year's draft. Well, I guess technically it was somebody else when they made the trade, but it was basically for uh, for Dario Saric, who landed on Philadelphia this year as well. Um, Would have been that pick for the the Pelicans. With Isaiah Thomas, yeah, I mean, no, yeah, they originally took Alfred Pinkman, then they traded him to Orlando for Dario Sarr. Isn't that it? Yeah, and it was the amazing interview that Philadelphia uh, Michael Carter Williams had with Jeff Goodman, where they were asking him, asking him, "Do you think that you're on the trading block?" Which was love Jeff, but probably the worst possible question to ask Michael Carter Williams at the NBA draft. Hey, they just drafted Alfred Payton. Do you think that you're on the block? <laughs> um, and then 10 minutes later, he was traded. And then 10 minutes later, well, wait, the NBA moves at the speed of Twitter, so you, you got to be careful when you're on live TV with the asking questions, because um, a lot of those questions end up coming to backfire you. I mean, it's, it's all hindsight. Um, well, and another thing that I just want to bring up with the Isaiah Thomas, then we'll, we'll transition into something else, is you know the usage rate is going to go down. He, he's not going to be a guy that's going to have the ball in his hands on a team that's destined to win 20, 22 games in the season and be able to go out there and make all the plays. So he's, he's going to be more compact, which I think is his best role in the NBA anyway, as a sixth man that you just say, go out there, you get X amount of possessions, go be as efficient as possible, go attack, go do some nice things. And, uh, and he produced like that for his first couple years in the NBA. 
But I, I think that that's one of those things where folks got to kind of temper back the expectations, scale it back. He's you know not going to be twenty and six or maybe even seventeen and six or anything off the bench. He'd probably be a little bit closer to you know maybe what he was producing as a uh, as a rookie or as a sophomore, but just maybe a little more efficiently and a little bit better the way he does it because he's more of a veteran at this stage of his career. So that's probably the one thing that I think people are getting real excited with the Isaiah Thomas thing, and it, it does some stuff with Eric Bledsoe that we're going to talk about as you mentioned before. Okay, that sounds good. Yep, I think uh, Isaiah Thomas will work out for the Suns, whether no matter what happens with uh, Eric Bledsoe. So you want to start talking about Bledsoe? Yeah, let's let's go ahead and do that. Is so Eric Bledsoe two two pronged attack with this conversation. The first prong is he's a restricted free agent, and the Suns can keep him no matter what. So I, all the reports out there that people have, and I think someone even poked fun at the Suns and said, I think the Phoenix Suns forgot that Eric Bledsoe is a restricted free agent, so I don't know why they're even negotiating with him. Just, like, let him go sign an offer sheet and then match it and keep him. But, you know, you want to keep your guys happy, obviously, and you want to try and get the contract you want. We saw Golden State get the contract they wanted with Stephen Curry, but the precedent for point guards, I, I sent this out on Twitter last night, the precedent for point guards is very few of them have gotten the max recently. And the ones that did proved it in a way where they deserved the max a lot more than what Eric has done on the court. And the other ones, I mean, 10 to 12, you know, 12 to 13, that's about the range that most of these guys are getting, which is basically what the Suns are offering. They're not giving him the Kyrie Irving, John Wall, Derrick Rose max. They're giving him the, uh, the what, Drew Holiday, Ty, uh, Ty Lawson, Steph Curry, 10 to 13, you know, $12 million range annual salary, which I don't think is unfair. I, I don't know if you have a differing opinion on that. No, actually, uh, actually, I think the four years, twelve million is perfect uh, for the same exact reasons you just gave. Point guards don't get more money than that; they really don't. And uh, I'm not sure why Bledsoe is pushing for the bigger contract, other than he can, he can ask. And you know what? It's still only mid July, and there's a lot of time that's going to pass before Bledsoe has to make a decision on whether he's taking his qualifying offer or not. Uh, it, there's, I mean, there's months here, so I don't think we have to worry about anything. I think eventually Bledsoe will sign, and the Suns will be happy, and if they're not happy after six months, anytime in the next, after six months and less than four years, they can trade it. Uh, but I don't see the Suns going way over their budget on what they think is reasonable for Bledsoe. However, the Suns will also be looking at the fact that the, that the revenues are going way up, the salary cap is going to be going way up, and even $15 million is not going to be as devastating in two years as it would have been two years ago. So uh, I think the Suns will wiggle a little bit on the salary, uh, but I don't think they'll wiggle too much, and they, I, I really don't see them going $16 million a year, uh, but even more so, I don't see them going five years. I, really, I just don't see the Suns doing that. Yeah, whether I... they eventually, you know, whether they alienate, uh, Bledsoe, kind of like the uh, Timberwolves alienated Love, possibly. But you know what? Love had proved himself, and Bledsoe is not. So, you know, if, if Bledsoe is going to feel slighted on that, then uh, that's, there's nothing the Suns will be able to do to well, stop it. the revisionist history with Kevin Love is that the Timberwolves alienated him. Um, but then again, I mean, he signed the contract. I don't know. I just, with the Kevin Love one, I don't really take too much precedent with. But, I mean, because he signed the contract, he could have very easily just said no, took the qualifying, or, you know, pushed harder for the max. But he signed the contract thinking that they were going to use the money and, and be able to bring in and do some fun things. But, it's you know, they didn't because Minnesota. Um, you know, that's, that's just not going to happen. They just unfortunately are what they are. Eventually they'll move to Seattle and they'll become a good franchise and everybody will be happy again. 
but you know and, and until then until then it's minnesota until then it's going to be the ricky rubio show with a bunch of miscellaneous players and gorgie jane getting 20 and 20 every other night um but yeah with, with eric bledsoe that's that's kind of where i fall because last year 43 games you know 19 6 and 5 i think were the overall numbers that he put up there with almost two steals a night and the team had a you know pretty decent record with him in the starting lineup they played really well i think they were 28 and 15 with him um, playing games, not necessarily just starting, but all 43 games he played. So he was really good. You know, if he was on the court the remainder of the season, they might have been a 50-52 win team somewhere in that neighborhood with the math. So, again, is he better than – you start playing this game. Is he better than Ty Lawson? Is he better than Drew Holiday? Is he better than, you know, Brandon Jennings and all these other point guards that are kind of in that almost tier but just below the max point guards of the world like Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul and so on and so forth. So – we can play that game all night, and people have differing opinions on where you slot Eric Bledsoe. The fact is, you brought up the best point. His equity of what he's done on the court is not at the level of some of those other guys. I mean, Steph Curry, if you want to look back at it, revisionist history, he got screwed. He should have gotten a max contract, and they, the Warriors got him on a bargain until his next deal, which will be a max, if he keeps doing what he's doing. So, equity-wise, well, yeah. Steph, the thing with Steph Curry is exactly what's happening with Bledsoe, and it's possible that his agent is using that as an example um, that, you know, hey, um, my guy does, should, doesn't want to suffer the same fate as Steph Curry because uh, Steph Curry did get underpaid because of his injury issues. And basically saying he's going to get better. He became a max contract level player. Yeah, well, you want to know why Eric Bledsoe is trying to get the max contract? Why? Because the Sacramento Kings. Um, no, no, it's, it's because of, it's, it's Rich Paul, you know, he's, he's, you know, the LeBron agent, he got, you know, his fame and fortune this summer and everyone knows who he is now. And, you know, he's out there, he's trying to get the same thing for his guy, Eric Bledsoe. And it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you, as an agent and as a player, your job is to try and maximize your uh, profitability. And as a team, you're trying to construct a team. But as you said before, 15 million a couple of years ago is 28% of the salary cap, I think, or something silly like that and almost 30%. And fifteen right. million in a couple of years might be a much lesser number. It might be closer to like twenty percent, where you can go out there and still shell out forty plus million to other players. Because what was the estimates that they had on that? I, I don't remember necessarily the numbers, but yeah, they said eighty. Yeah, 80, significant 80 jump. Yeah, that's twenty six more than what it was last year. Because last year it was at fifty four. So I mean, it's a it's a significant jump that you're seeing. But oh, yeah, fifty eight. Okay. More. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So fifty eight. Okay. So it jumps up significantly there, and. There's a lot more money to play with, and that gives you the opportunity if Eric Bledsoe takes, let's say he takes the 12 or 13 now, and you get Goran next year for in that comparable range, and those two guys continue to be who they are or potentially better, then you have all that extra money to go get a max guy, to go, you flirted with LeBron and he winked at you, and now maybe someone will actually seal the deal with you and come home. So this might end up being a situation where if you can get these guys at a decent bargain and they're still getting paid, you might be able to go out there and get that missing piece and become a championship team. So, Chris, let me ask you, uh, we do all this uh, talk about contracts and numbers and all that to, to be able to afford to keep those guys together. Do you see Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe being a top-level uh, point guard combination for uh, four years? Goran is what twenty nine coming into this upcoming season. He's going to be twenty eight. Twenty eight this summer. He's turning twenty. I didn't know if he was twenty eight or twenty nine because I didn't have it up in front of me. So he's turning twenty eight 
I think so. Yeah, I I think that those guys... See, I was skeptical when they first put the team together, and I said that one of these two guys is gone by the end of the season, like 90% of the basketball world, and also said they were going to be a bottom-five team, like 90% of the basketball world, and they proved us wrong. But watching them play, their styles balance each other out so well. And, I mean, granted, losing Fry as a shooter and teams now having the scout on them, it's going to be a little different next year, but I think they balance each other out tremendously well, and if they can keep those guys together for four years then they can rival what Washington's young backcourt is potentially going to be, what Golden State's backcourt is, and what some of the other top backcourts are in the NBA. I think that this is one of the top three to five backcourts minimum and has a chance to be even better than that. I think I 100% agree with you. I don't understand the... Well, the critics who say the backcourt can't work together for too long are the ones who are waiting for the Suns to be on national TV because they, can't, they haven't seen any of their games yet. I think if you watch these two guys play together, it's obvious that they can play very well together for the next four years. And I think uh, I think the Suns have that same feeling. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, would it be nice for the team to have a traditional lineup and the team to be talented enough to have Eric or Gorin coming off the bench and having a NBA starter quality six foot six shooting guard and NBA quality six foot eight small foot? You know what I mean? Going down the line there and having a traditional lineup, yeah, that that'd be fantastic on one hand. But on the other, they create a lot of mismatch opportunities, and they went from being a team that Vegas predicted to win the over-under was 19 and a half games to going up and winning 48 because of what they do. And again, the scouting report's out on them. Teams are ready. They know what they do. There's going to be film on these two guys attacking and just tearing up teams uh, in transition and in the half court and slashing at the bucket. But, I mean, you can prepare for it, but the speed those two guys have, the quickness, the ability to get to the rim, the finishing ability, it's one thing to be ready for it and prepare for it, another thing to actually go out there and stop it, which is why they're so effective. Absolutely. And and they can play enough defense to hold their hold their sway too. So I think these guys are definitely a quality uh tandem and maybe even stronger by Isaiah Thomas being there. Yeah, and definitely stronger by Isaiah being there. Now switching the, the question around for you, Dave, is some people are going, Oh, they signed Isaiah Thomas, one of these other guys are gonna get traded and we slide Isaiah into the other spot. As you mentioned, defensively, these two guys, Goran and Eric, can go out there and they can do some things defensively to hold their own because Goran's roughly six four, and you have uh, Eric who's six foot one, but can you know he, he's he's a strong bull and he goes out there and he does a lot of things. So those two guys have the size, the strength, the athleticism, the toughness. They have a lot of intangibles that allow them to work together as two point guards. You you substitute one of those guys for Isaiah, and you're bringing in a five foot eleven guy with not a ton of strength not a ton of elite athleticism defensively can be a little bit of a matador and it kind of changes that dynamic dramatically it's not just throw two point guards together and they're good because they're playing in phoenix wearing purple uniforms it's because eric and goran play well together so is is substituting isaiah in as a starter an option if they make a trade with one of these two guys do you see that kind of a tandem working uh, well, it's going to be a little bit less effective, you know, because uh, Isaiah Thomas is not the player either, targets or Bledsoe. Uh, what, where Isaiah Thomas could replace somebody is with uh, Bledsoe as far as stature. You can't really stick Bledsoe and Thomas in the same backcourt full-time. Uh, they're just, as a tandem, too small, I think. Even though Bledsoe is uh, strong as a bulldog, you can defend shooting guards. You can't defend them all. And sometimes you need a little bit more length, and uh, certainly Isaiah Thomas is the opposite of that. However, Isaiah Thomas does have a have a good reputation for a great lateral movement. He can stop drives. He can keep the quicker point guards out of the paint. 
Um, it's where, and it doesn't get posted up very often either because you can, you can, uh, bulldog and finagle his way around not, not allowing too many post-ups. He didn't, people didn't post him up like crazy last year when they could have. Um, so, you know, he's not a disaster on defense. He just can't close out on shooters. The biggest thing, if you watch the, uh, Mike Schmidt's free agent profile of Isaiah Thomas, his biggest problem is not defense. It's closing out on a shooter. Um, that, you know, he's rotating to and because he doesn't have the length. He doesn't have the height. He can't get up there to stop a guy from having a nice open look on the three-point line on defensive rotation. But otherwise, Thomas is a, is a solid defender, uh, according to the, uh, again, according to some of the Kings fans, as well as Mike Schmitz with Draft Express. Yeah, the, the thing with Sacramento, though, is that you want to know why Isaiah Thomas was a bad closeout guy on defensively getting out there on the three-point line? Why? Because Sacramento. the Sacramento Kings. I mean, they, that was that was their absolute biggest thing that was wrong with them on the defensive end was that they were just atrocious at rotations and closing out on threes, and they were one of the worst two or three teams in, in three-point total makes and efficiency and percentage and all that stuff for the opponent. So they were just, as a team, they were god-awful. I don't know if that's a, a kind of a knock on Isaiah because he was a big part of that perimeter defense, obviously, or just the scheme and the way that they played the game of basketball on the defensive end as a unit. Well, but, I... Yeah, I find it quite interesting. Mike Malone came in there as a defensive yeah. guru, and they were awful. So his way of teaching defense did not fit his team, uh, clearly. And uh, can you remember how many years was Darren Collison in L.A.? Uh, oh, never mind, never mind. Forget I even asked that question because Mike Malone was with Golden State. Yeah. California is not a city, it's a state, Dave. Shut up. Okay, but anyway... Uh, uh, Mike Malone had a defensive reputation when he came to Sacramento. He was supposed to make them better, and they actually uh, were just as bad as they were the year before. So the the personnel didn't fit the scheme he wanted to run. One of those people was obviously Isaiah Thomas. So there are things that Isaiah Thomas will not be able to do, and you've got to have a coordinator who can cover for that. One guy who has experience covering for uh, bad defenders is is uh, Mike Longobardi because he was the defensive guy for the Celtics for a lot of years that turned Ray Allen into a passable defender. Ray Allen was a fifth. Ray Allen was a post uh, when he was in, with Seattle. Then he goes to Boston and he gets covered for it because you pick your better defenders and you have the better defenders take up a little bit more space and your worst defenders take up a little bit less space. So it's all about the scheme. I think the Suns can cover for Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, and and the thing with uh, Ray Allen, if I remember correctly, from his pre-Boston days, was that he defended Kobe Bryant well, and twenty-nine other shooting guards got awful. Like it, for some reason, he always defended Kobe well, whether it was a pride thing or uh, I don't know what that was. But and then he defended everybody else pretty terribly. Someone's gonna look that up and throw numbers at me and say he gave up fifty points a night to Kobe. No, he defended him well if you watch the games, um, not look at stats. I'm not that guy. So yeah, you don't look at the totals. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so let's let's close this out just real quick, like one sentence, two sentence finale here for Eric Bledsoe. What you're not wearing a Suns polo shirt and clocking into the office there uh, at U.S. Airways Center. So we're also not working for Eric Bledsoe or Rich Paul. What is a fair contract when you consider the yearly amount, the years, player slash team options? What would you say is a fair contract for what you think he deserves? You know, I would go, uh, I would actually, I was always saying the Suns would match any max offer. So I guess, to be uh, honest, I would I would match a four, 
year $63 million contract, which is on average a little over $15 million a year. What Bledsoe wants is the slightly higher raises. He wants the 7.5% so the 4.5%, and he wants the extra year, which makes it all $80 million. But overall, um, I, I guess I still, if you do an average annual value of all the years of the contract or the four years of the contract, it's a little over $15 million. So I guess I would do that. I would be ecstatic if the Suns could get him for 12 or 13 and he's not disgruntled. So that's what I'm hoping for if the Suns sign him for less. Um, then they'll then it'll be a great deal because I think he will outplay as long as he stays healthy. I think he will outplay the contract. Um, but I do uh, I do worry that um, you know if you go five years and eighty million that that's just a little bit too much to commit to a guy who could get hurt. Four yeah. years is a little easier commitment. I would actually be thrilled with a three year commitment like uh, Chandler Parsons did in Dallas. And see that's that's kind of where I was going to go is. I think that he ceiling wise again health is a huge thing knock on wood and you know Aaron Nelson you know do your thing but health is a huge part of it but I think a 3 year with a player option contract of and you could have escalators in there if you want you can start it at 11 and then go 12 13 14 or whatever you want to do but I think that he des- he's a little bit better of a player overall ceiling wise than a Ty Lawson Ty Lawson got 12 million a year that's where I would go I I'd put him in that Higher paid than Ty Lawson, basically paid right about the same as Drew Holiday, maybe a touch more. So that 13-14 would be where I would go. Maybe throw like a player option in there for year four. That way you get him for three. He plays his contract out, and then you go ahead and say, all right, now you've earned your max. Let's give you six years. Let's give you the money. You're not old. You know, you're still going to be in your prime through pretty much all six of those years. Let's go ahead and lock you up long term. You know, we took care of you for the most part. Now we're going to take care of you long term for sure. That That's kind of where I would go. That's what I've been thinking the whole time is I don't love the committing to four years or more unless he's like a legit max face of the franchise player. So maybe that three plus an option. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that would be a great compromise. Really, I think anything they sign him for is going to be uh, – worth it because of the way the, the cap is going to go up. So, but I'd really, I'd uh, really like to stay in the uh, three to four year range as far as length. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if the NBA decides to go to the, uh, the Paramount Pictures, Hollywood movie salary style contracts where you pay one guy, whatever the heck you want, and then you have a budget for the rest of the roster, we can do that too. And in a couple of years, we can give Eric Bledsoe, you know, $35 million a year and then pay the rest of the roster with the salary cap. Um, they're never going to do that, so unfortunately. So what do you think? Okay, so let me ask you this. I know we only said one or two more sentences before we move on, but um, let me ask you this. What if he wants to do a LeBron? What if he wants a two-year contract with a player option on the second year? But $15 million a year. So you get him for two years for sure, and then the third year is that player option? Is that what you're referencing? Or well, one year and then LeBron player option? Did, what LeBron did is he only has one guaranteed year and uh, a player option in the second year. I would do two with... I, I'd want him for the two years. I, I'd, Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as four guaranteed, but I don't know if I would want him for less than three guaranteed. So I'd, if you wanted to do two guaranteed, I think I'd be okay with that, with a player option or even nothing afterwards. Um, but yeah, that's, that's super risky where you go, all right, we're going to give you a lot of money next year, and then you go out there and play your butt off, and then you're going to go leave and sign for big money elsewhere because you have the ability to leave. It's not a qualifying offer. It's a player option. I, I don't think I would do that if I was McDonough. Yeah, that's the thing. See, it's a, it's a, he'd be an unrestricted free agent after that. So yeah. um, while the Cavaliers are ruling the dice on that, and, and you know Paul Pierce got the same contract in Washington where he's got a one-year out. It's a two-year contract with a player option on the second year. 
Um, and it allows these guys to go back into the market every single year. With LeBron, you're always going to be underpaying him. No matter what the max is, that's fine. You know, and you can always give him more as the home team. So that's fine. But with uh, the Suns, you know, you don't necessarily want to go through this every single year with Eric Bledsoe, especially if he's unrestricted. Then he can just go to anybody. Um, although he can still get more from the home team simply because of the bird rights and the, and the bigger raises and all that. But still, um, I'm not sure if I want to start a pattern like that with a 24-year-old where every year it's a one-year contract. I don't think it has... It may be a pattern think, that was started with uh, with LeBron James. It may not have anything to do with the age of the player. But I just that might be a new trend that players are doing in general if it works out for LeBron. Well, that's and it's already like I just said, uh, Paul Pierce did it. So I think it's already starting to be a trend, and I wouldn't be surprised if that actually becomes their their next comeback. Is give us the money on one or two years, and then then let's see what you want to do, sons. And then, and then hopefully compromise on three or something like that. So that's where I think it'll be. Uh, it'll come down to. And, and all this is a moot point when LeBron James, uh, the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, makes his demands, and the Suns end up swinging. <laughs> the Suns end up swinging Eric Bledsoe to Cleveland, and Kyrie Irving goes to Minnesota, and the Suns land Kevin Love, and every Suns fan can uh, can rejoice and, and exhale because they've been holding their breath waiting for Kevin Love for months. You guys are all blue in the face. Um, <laughs> yeah, no that that's actually an interesting fantasy booking fake story that has no actual legs behind it is what happens if, you know, someone gets all of a sudden really interested in a guy like Eric Bledsoe and the Suns can actually make a move and you know, now that Indiana's potentially not going to be one of the best teams in the East, maybe Paul George is back on the table and they can trade for Eric Bledsoe. Um completely fake stuff I'm just throwing out there guys. Um Yeah, but see that's that's the thing. What I've always maintained is I don't want the Suns to trade Bledsoe, but if they do they need to trade better yeah. or trade equal. They can't be just giving them away. So I never thought the Suns would actually not match an offer. And I know fans around or fans, the media and around the league are skeptical that the Suns will match a max offer. I think they will match a max offer. But they'll also be open to an equal sign-in trade. Otherwise, sign-in and then just trade them later when you can get an equal sign-in trade or at least something comparable. But... They're not going to trade. They're not going to just let him go to some other team for nothing. And they're not going to do it for a top 55 protected second-round pick either. They're going to want some real value back. And, you know, preferably like a Minnesota wants real value back to a Kevin Love. Exactly. And that's, you know, where every team wants to end up coming out on the hot end of the trade there. And there's been some fair trades in NBA history, but usually it's pretty lopsided at the end of the day. And you know, Kevin Love, if you, if you, people keep saying Boston has this amazing package to trade for Kevin Love. I look at their roster and go, the only pieces that are worth having, they're not trading. And the rest of that roster is just hot garbage and some draft picks. So I don't see how they have the quote unquote best trade package. Now, Cleveland obviously might now with having Andrew Wiggins on the table. But, you know, hey, Phoenix, if you're willing to throw Eric Bledsoe on the chopping block there because you know you can't bring him on and he's willing to sign his max contract and then go to Minnesota, that's a conversation that might be uh, worth entertaining. You might be able to finagle a, uh, a Kevin Love trade but let's go to something that's actually real let's get off the fantasy and and move to the reality which is Sun Summer League ended a little bit shorter this year than it did last year you're in Vegas to go watch them in the playoffs or I guess watch other teams now in the playoffs unfortunately um, 
Oh, no, no, we'll watch the Suns in the consolation bracket. <laughs> well, there you go, right? So you'll, you'll see them in the consolation, but you won't see them in the tournament that uh, that matters there. Yeah, the, a loss to Golden State early, and then uh, Gorgie Jang goes off and ends up uh, knocking off the Suns there in the first round, I guess, of the playoffs. I don't know how they're describing this weird tournament, but... Um, That's what they called it, the first round. There you go. Knockout. There you go, the knockout round, right? Every round is the knockout round. These guys aren't playing seven the game series. Round, <laughs> the knockout round. No, there there better not be there better not be seven game series of Minnesota's uh, summer league team versus Philadelphia's summer league team. I think everybody will end their vacation <laughs> really quickly if that happens. Um, uh, but so summer league easy takes are T.J. Warren looks phenomenal. Caveat: it's summer league, and the rest of the roster has been moments, but pretty much ho hum overall. What what have been your takes? I know you've seen more of the games, watched more full games than I have. I've seen a, a good amount of T.J. Warren. I've seen some highlights, but I, I tend to shy away a little bit from the summer league um, while detoxing from watching all these kids in college all year. What what have been your thoughts overall with the summer league so far for the Suns? Well, for the Suns in general, um, you've got you've got some guys who are trying to work on things. The, the sophomores or the people who've been in summer league before are actually trying to work on things. I was talking to Seth about that earlier today, Seth Pollock and um, uh, some other guys a few days ago about the, what the Suns are doing. And, and I was a little disappointed in Archie Goodwin this year because he didn't just come out and score 26 points a game. Well, he came into Summer League not wanting to do that. He knows he can get 20, 25, 26 points a game, driving to the hoop and drawing fouls and all that. He's proven that. Uh, what he hasn't proven is that he can pass, that he can play team ball, that he can pass the ball off, even if he's not getting the assist, he can create the hockey assist kind of thing. So he's trying to facilitate more, and that's a real adjustment for him. And it's a struggle. And the whole point of Summer League is that you're supposed to learn things. You're not supposed to, it's okay not to already know them. So um, Archie Goodwin has not looked great in the Summer League, but he wasn't designed to look great. This hasn't been the Archie Goodwin Showcase, and he never meant it to be the Archie Goodwin Showcase, and neither did his coach. So we need to give Archie a little bit of a break there. He's trying to mold his game, round out his game. Uh, same is true for Miles Plumley. He came into Summer League specifically intending to work on that mid-range game and hook shots and all that. He wasn't meant to make 80% of his shots, and he didn't, and that's okay. But he's otherwise been himself, and especially since Alex Lynn went down. He's been playing a lot more minutes probably than he originally planned because after trading Alex Oriaki for Isaiah Thomas, the Suns came to camp or summer league with, with no big men. Um, they have Alec Brown, who is about as, as wide as a, as a, you know, as a weed in the grass. Um, he's really, really skinny. He's just not ready to play. Otherwise, and all you have is Miles Plumley. So really the Suns have been really undersized. So Plumley's played more minutes. He's been his normal self, nine points, 10 rebounds, 12 rebounds, whatever it is. But he hasn't made making all of his shots because he's been taking tougher ones. He's been taking 15-footers, some of them off the backboard like Duncan, some of them straight to the hoop, some of them hook shots. Um, and he's not meant to make them all, so I think he's he's had a good learning experience in summer league. T.J. Warren, on the other hand, gets to just do what he does well. So T.J. Warren this year is Archie Goodman of last year. Do what you do well, T.J., and we'll work on your fall player. And uh, what he does well is score, and he's been scoring in bunches. If you take out the game, he only played seven minutes because he got a stitch over his eye and didn't have time to score. Um, he'd be averaging 25 points a game, easily leading summer league in scoring. That doesn't mean you're going to be a star. Uh, Marco Bellinelli 
led summer league in scoring several years ago, and everyone thought he would be a star. He wasn't, and it's only taken him until he joined the Spurs and the and the Bulls last couple of years to actually be a viable rotation player. So this isn't like guaranteed that T.J. Warren's going to be a really good player, but he is extremely creative around the basket, and he's shown that I think I think he's shown me that he's going to be able to score in the NBA. Whether he does the other things well enough to be a full-time rotation player is another question, but definitely he can score. Um, otherwise, the Suns have been a mismatch. Um, Tyler Ennis has been really good as Tyler Ennis, which is a facilitator. He is not a big-time player athletically, so he's not going to wow you. Uh, but definitely he is a facilitator, and Mike Longobardi has really enjoyed having him, having him running the team. Seth Curry has shown up pretty well as a 6'3", 6'4", shooting guard. His only problem is he's 6'3", 6'4", shooting guard. So uh, he's going to have a tough time making the NBA as that. Um, but he may have earned himself a training camp invite at least off the summer league. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to. I mean, you had David Stockton on the roster and Seth Curry on the roster, and I'm, I'm, I was looking for Swin Cash, but they didn't give her an invite, so Carl Malone's daughter didn't get a chance to come over and create that, uh, you know, Coach Hornacek's, uh, Coach Hornacek's coaching. But you almost had the uh, the guys from Utah there from the '90s all kind of bringing on their youngsters or having some kind of a connection to the Suns this year. But it was Seth Curry? He was the interesting one. I, I thought coming in that Taylor Braun. Alec Brown, Seth Curry, Deontay Christmas, they were going to basically go out there and have a shooting audition. Uh, Taylor Braun has played seven minutes, so obviously he was kind of left out of that. And Alec Brown hasn't shot the ball particularly well. And then you have Deontay and Seth, who have shot the ball pretty well overall, both of them collectively. And their numbers are very similar-ish kind of across the board there. Deontay's gotten a little bit more minutes, so his numbers are a little more inflated. But they've basically been the same player. The difference is that Deontay can play defense. He's a good athlete. He's bigger, and he can go out there and play the two. And he's not a bad guy to have as your 12th man and, you know, be in the locker room and, you know, be a positive influence on the team. So, I mean, have you seen anything from anybody that makes you think beyond training camp invite that other than contracted players, the Suns are going to bring any of these guys onto the actual roster? I really, personally, I haven't. I think Deontay Christmas is has the straightest shot to the roster. The Suns just today picked up um, uh, Shavlik Randolph's contract for next year that guaranteed it. And Deontay's is the decision that's coming up at the end of July. Um, it's possible he'll be packaging a deal to somebody who doesn't want to have to keep him on the roster and they want to, you know, do a salary matching. Um, so that's quite possible he'll get packaged and traded. Um, but if he's not, I'm pretty sure the Suns will just pick up his contract and bring him back next year and be a 14th man cheerleader off the bench. They love his presence on the, on the team and in the locker room. And the Suns really value those kind of guys. Yeah, and uh, if you guys didn't hear me before, shout out to Ish Smith getting that contract with the Houston Rockets. I, I don't know if he's going to stick over there. He signed a one-year deal with them. He might be that 14th, 15th guy as well. But, um, you know, real happy for him to just get a contract beyond an NBA team because he earned it over the past few years. And, and as much as you may not have loved his shooting capacity <laughs> with the Phoenix Suns, I think he did a lot of positive things out here, kind of, you know, making up some of those minutes for Goran and Eric when they went down. But... Yeah, I mean, overall, like having a guy like Deontay at the end of the bench is not a bad thing. So if you're back three bench guys or your guys that are wearing suits, uh, for for lack of a better term, are Deontay Christmas and Tyler Ennis and uh, Archie Goodwin every now and then, Alec Brown if they bring him on, Shavlik Randolph, like if that's your rotation of guys in suits and then one or two of those guys is wearing a uniform at the end of the bench and never takes his warm-ups off, it's not a bad end of the bench. It's not a bad injury reserve pool and, you know, last four guys on the roster, I think. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I totally agree. So I think I don't see any new players coming on unless Deontay Christmas is uh, traded. Yeah. So I want to end this with you. You got to see a pretty fantastic game on Thursday with Houston and Cleveland overall, just the finish, the overall game in general. But overall, the whole day, you watched, I think, about 1,300 basketball games, I think you said, um, between the two <laughs> arenas and Summer League and players that are from Division Eight colleges and, and just weird stuff going on out there in Vegas. But what, what are some of your favorite moments there from Thursday Summer League action that you were able to watch live? Well, I actually did write up a recap at the site tonight, so you guys will see that. You probably already did see it before you listen to this podcast, but um, I really like the way Wiggins looked. I can see why he was a number one pick value guy. He looks like he's, he's got a big future in the league. Um, and I can see why, um, and I know people are, are going to hate on me for this because they love Nerlens Noel, but I can see why uh, the Suns passed on Nerlens Noel because he's really athletic, but he's just so skinny. And at the same time, he's bendy, like his legs and arms just go every which way. The dude's going to snap in half at some point. And, uh, but otherwise, if you don't think about that, and you just look at him, he's incredibly athletic. He really knows how to jump and block shots and, and uh, protect the paint. But he is not going to be um, a post defender. He just doesn't have enough sand in the bucket. Um, so that's all, even if he just keeps, you know, keeps himself on the floor the whole time. And I really do hope he stays healthy, yeah, but I do worry about that. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a super fun player to watch. And, I mean, in college you can kind of get away with being a uh, female supermodel thin and be able to actually go out there and play and be effective. But he's going he's gonna to have to add something to that frame. I mean, the laws of physics and the laws of the human anatomy are, are going to eventually catch up with him on the NBA court when you got 280-pound guys barreling into you every other play every single night in the NBA. But, no, that, I mean, Summer League is... It's a unique thing. Like I said, I detox from watching these guys because I've watched pretty much 80% of the guys in Summer League all year with college basketball and, and cover the draft. So I usually step away from Summer League and, and not watch them in that weird setting where they look really, really bad and then sometimes really good. Um, but, you know, a lot of good things are happening out there. You know, like you said, Wiggins is looking pretty nice and a lot of these players have a chance to shine, earn their way onto a training camp roster and, you know, battle to make a team, which I think is the biggest thing with Summer League is it gives these guys another opportunity and outlet to make the NBA. Exactly. So it's a, it's a chance for actual NBA players, young NBA players, to get reps, and for these other guys to to get some eyes on them. Because you've got 29 teams, the scouts watching every all these games as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, good stuff, Dave. As always, I'm going to pat ourselves on the back there. And you want to know why? Because Sacramento. Because the Sacramento Kings. Um, that joke is not <laughs> going to go over very well with Sacktown Royalty and those guys over there if they listen to our podcast. So you guys are welcome. We, You guys were the running joke this week. Um, that's it. That That's a wrap there, Dave. Any parting shots for the Brightsiders there before we cut it loose? Uh, no, I've got uh, full coverage of the Suns tomorrow. I am looking forward to watching their last game. I do hope everybody plays. But even if they don't, I'll recognize the guys at least. So, uh, you know, I'll have a good time, and I'll give you guys a recap and then I'll enjoy the rest of my weekend in Vegas. All right, man. Well, good stuff, Dave. Well, check us out. This will be on TuneIn. This is on the pod, on the website, as always. Uh, download the link there. Download the MP3 file. Once iTunes likes us, it'll be on there as well. So stop asking about iTunes and just go download the TuneIn app. It's free. It's the same thing. You get to listen to the podcast on there. It's just like Pandora. So go jump on there and take care of that. And we'll be back 
next week or sooner with the episode 60 of the BS of the Suns podcast. And if you like that kind of thing, jump over and listen to the After Dark podcast. Those guys are doing some things over there. I don't know if they're good things or bad things, but they're doing some things. 